0: Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Great to be opening God's Word with you and welcome. If you don't normally find yourself at church, uh, it's great to have you with us. We are thinking about our identity today. Who are you? Uh, When someone asks you, tell me about yourself, what do you say? What are the kind of things that make up your identity? Uh, Let me put it this way. Imagine that your identity was a book. And on each page of this book, there is one thing about you. So for me, there's a page that says son, and a page that says brother, and friend, and male, and dad, and husband, and Christian, and martial artist, and Australian, and mediocre musician. There's a page in each, each my book has got all these pages. Uh, and some of the pages in our books are fixed. They're not changing, they're not changeable. Some of them are fluid, they change across life. Uh, for instance, I'll always be a male, but I may not always be a mediocre musician. I could practice someday, and I could actually get good. Uh, or I could give up music. And give up my instruments and it not be part of my identity anymore. Now here's the burning question. If you think about your identity like this, your identity book, here's the burning question. What's on the title page of your book? What is the most important thing to know about you? Usually this is what we lead with or focus on when someone asks, tell me about yourself. The most important thing is the thing that we share or focus on. And the title page shapes the rest of your identity book. It helps you to prioritize. Uh, For instance, if my title page said musician, then being a musician would be more important to me than being a son or a brother or a dad. And with the demands on my time, I would prioritize music. That's what would happen if the title page of my book was musician. It helps you to prioritize. It also helps you to be stable. Every other page in your book may change, But your title page remains as the heart of who you are. If you're a Christian, God gives us our title page. He gives us our identity. And today we're going to see what it is. We're going to see what's on our title page to shape the rest of our book, to help us prioritize, and to give us stability. And if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're exploring Jesus... This can be your title page too, what we look at in Romans. And it's more stable, it gives more peace, it gives more hope than any other identity could. So I'm going to pray and then let's have a look at what God has to say to us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the things you give to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the identity that you give us in Jesus. We pray that as we look at this today, you'd speak to us, you'd help us understand it, and you'd change us because of the things that we read and think through. Amen. Well, if you're a Christian, your new identity is in verse 14. Have a look with me. Romans 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. All right, let me give you a more literal translation. A more literal translation of this would be, because those led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Uh, The because tells us we're in the middle of an argument. You don't start a conversation with because. It's partway through. And it takes us back to verse 12. So have a look at verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Uh, Basically, we've seen in Romans 8, if you're a Christian, then your title page says, no condemnation. That's on your title page. Uh, Jesus was condemned so that we could be accepted by God. We saw that two weeks ago. And then last week we saw, what's on your title page? You've changed realms. You're not controlled or governed or led by the flesh anymore. Now you're controlled and governed and led by the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit. Another way to say all of that. Another piece to the title page is that if you're a child, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God, or better still, you're a son of God. God gives us a new identity as Christians, we're sons of God. Whether you're a male or a female, if you're a Christian, you're a son of God, which might sound a little bit weird. I may even feel a little bit demeaning if you're a woman. But it's not meant to be, it's actually the opposite of that. All Christians sons, because in ancient Israel, only the sons would inherit from their parents. Uh, the parents might have equally loved and equally valued their son and their daughter, but only the sons would inherit. And the son was meant to use that money from the inheritance to love and serve and protect the women around them. And sometimes they did that really well. Sometimes they neglected and abused their responsibility. But the point here is that all Christians, men and women, male and female, are sons of God who inherit. Uh, So if you're a woman and it seems weird to see yourself as a son, remember as well that the church is the bride of Christ. So if you're a Christian man, you're a bride married to Christ. That feels pretty weird too. But that's our title page. All Christians are in God's family. And the proof that we're sons of God is in verse 15. Look with me at verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The proof that you're sons of God is that you call God Father. Now, as a kid, you may have called a teacher dad. Uh, That didn't make him your dad. Uh, just made you embarrassed as everybody laughed at you, uh, even your best friend Alex. I'm just working through some stuff up here. Yeah, it may have happened to you, uh, but when Christians call God dad, that's totally right. That's who he is. He is our dad. He's adopted us into his family through the spirit, and the proof that we're sons of God is that we call God Abba. We call the infinite, holy, majestic, all-powerful God. Dad, Daddy, Papa, that's what we call him. That's an intimate title, isn't it? It speaks of a close and safe and loving relationship that we have with God, which might raise a problem for us if our experience of fathers has not been like that. All of us have had a dad, and some of us had or have great fathers. And so to call God Daddy, that's a really good association, Others of us have had selfish or absent or abusive fathers. And so words like close and safe and loving are not words we would ever connect with father. And we've all had fathers who sinned and failed and disappointed us. And the problem is when our experience of human fathers impacts our view of God the father, it should be the other way around. God, the Father, is the standard to, by which to evaluate all human fathers. All fathers fall short of God, the perfect parent. Because our Father God will never give up on us, He will never hurt us, He will never stop loving us. He's never broken a promise to you. He always acts for our good. And if you're a Christian, God is not a stranger, He's not your enemy. He's your papa. And you didn't deserve that. You didn't earn that. That doesn't make any sense. How could you earn adoption? How could you deserve to be adopted? That's not how adoption works. You're adopted if new parents choose that they're going to love you and welcome you. And that's what God has done for us. God gives us a new identity as sons of God. That's your title page if you're a Christian. And if you're not yet a Christian, that can be your title page. Our culture tells us to find our own identity. I'm sure you've heard these kind of ideas. Find your own identity. Be who you want to be. Uh, You decide what's in your identity book. You decide what's on your title page. And so we spend, as as a culture, as a society, we spend a lot of time trying to do exactly that. And it's pictured as this freeing and exhilarating thing. You can be whoever you want to be. But in reality... As I'm sure we all know, it's incredibly stressful to do that. It's incredibly stressful to find your own identity because there's 10 billion options of who you could be, 10 billion options of what's in your identity book, what's on your title page, and you have to choose each page every single day. And it's incredibly stressful because how can you be stable and at peace if you're constantly shifting in something as foundational as who you are? And it's incredibly stressful because we can get our identity wrong and we can believe things about ourselves that aren't true. But God gives us an identity. God gives us a really good identity, far better than any we could ever make for ourselves. If you trust Jesus as your savior and you follow him as your king, God welcomes you into his family as a son of God, a son who inherits, which is the second thing we see here, The God gives us a new hope. He gives us a hope of glory with Jesus, the inheritance. So look at verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Uh, If we're God's children, if we're the sons of God, then we're God's heirs. That's what a son is, an heir inherits You know, in ancient Israel, that's what happens. So we are God's heirs. He's adopted us into the family. And we're Jesus Christ's co-heirs. Jesus Christ has adopted us as his brothers. And so we share in Jesus' glory. Now, what's Jesus' glory? You get a couple of glimpses of it across this chapter. Look at verse 21. Uh, The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Or look down at verse uh, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This is a couple of snapshots of the glory that he's describing here. Uh, We saw a little bit of this in 1 Corinthians 15, if you remember back to that. The glory of a new body, a perfect body in the new perfect creation. When death and sin are gone... The glory of ruling over the world with Jesus instead of being ruled over by the world. Of ruling over evil with Jesus, not being ruled over by evil. Sharing in the fame and the honor and the glory and power of Jesus, our brother. That's what's ahead of us. That's our hope. Ahead of us is glory. If, verse 17, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed... We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. God gives us this new hope of glory with Jesus after suffering. Glory is after waiting for what we hope for. Uh, 2022 is almost done. Uh, We're almost into December. Share with the person next to you. What is one thing you're hoping for next year? What is one thing you're hoping for next year? Have a quick chat to the person next to you. One or two minutes. All right, coming back, everybody. Hopefully a lot of things. Hopefully you're hoping for and anticipating a lot of things. But one thing I can guarantee, whatever you shared as your hope for next year, one thing I can guarantee about that hope is that you don't already have it. Uh, That's how hope works. You hope for it because you don't have it at the moment. Uh, It may be a silly hope that you're unlikely to ever get. It may be a certain hope that you're 100% guaranteed to get, but you hope for it because you don't have it at the moment. And it's the same with Christian's hope. God saved us. He gave us this new identity. God has given us this hope of glory with Jesus But we're waiting for it. We're waiting to see it. Look at verse 24. That's what Paul's saying in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We don't have yet what we wait for, so we hope for it. And it's 100% certain that this hope will come because God has promised it and God has never broken a promise in all of eternity. And it's 100% certain because the God who's going to deliver it, nobody could ever stop that God from delivering it. But we hope for it because it's in the future. If we had it, we wouldn't hope for it. We don't have it and so we wait for it. And it's really hard to wait. Now whether you're a kid waiting for Christmas whether you're a uni student waiting for your exam results, whether you're waiting for a phone call after a job interview, whether you're waiting for a paycheck, whether you're waiting for holidays to start, whether you're waiting to get well after sickness, it is painful to wait. But There's actually more going on here. It's not just that it's hard to wait. It's that the new hope we have of glory with Jesus comes after we suffer with Jesus It's glory through suffering. It's glory via suffering. Look at verse 17. It says that in verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If you want to share in Jesus' glory, we need to share in Jesus' suffering. Because the pattern of Jesus' life is the pattern of our lives too. There is no other road to glory. There is no shortcut where you just coast through life straight on into glory. Uh, I've heard sometimes, you might have heard this too, I've sometimes heard church leaders promote something called the prosperity gospel. And it sounds something like this uh, when, when church leaders say, the good news of the Bible is that Jesus suffered for us so we don't have to. He suffered for us so we can expect smooth sailing, glory in this life now, and more glory after death. Which seems to me to be the exact opposite of what this verse is saying. And it's the exact opposite of what Jesus says many times. Uh, if you can remember back, if you, if you know this part of the Bible, remember back to when Jesus is tempted by the devil, when he's tested. Uh, the devil says this to him. A couple of different temptations. This is the last one from Matthew The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What's the power of that temptation? Why does Satan hold that out as a temptation to Jesus? Well, it's because Satan is offering Jesus the glory of without the suffering, the gain without the pain. Because the glory of all the kingdoms of the world and ruling over them, that's what Jesus gets on the other side of the cross. That is his glory. That's what he inherits, the glory of ruling all the kingdoms of the world after the cross. And Jesus doesn't listen to Satan. He trusts his father. He walks a life of suffering that climaxes at the cross, and only then he receives the glory of ruling over everything. Uh, the same thing comes up in Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's the same path for us. The path that Jesus walked is the same path for us. And so the new hope we have of glory with Jesus comes after we suffer with Jesus, which I think is actually refreshingly realistic. Uh, when Christians suffer, it doesn't undermine our hope. It guarantees our hope. It makes it even more sure. The God who has given us this new hope, the God who is a good father, he is also, thirdly, he is also the God who gives us new help. New help to eagerly wait, a new identity, a new hope, and new help to eagerly wait. Three helps, in fact, are three things that he helps us with. Uh, the first one is comparison. He gives us comparison. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. They're not even worth comparing. If you look at the suffering and the glory, they're not even worth comparing. Uh, at the moment, I've been spending a fair bit of time watching the FIFA World Cup, sort of the moment uh, In the lead-up to the World Cup, I can guarantee that the, the teams, the players training, have put in thousands of hours of painful, intense training in the hope that at the end they will hold up the trophy. And when one team finally wins, they will say it was all worth it. Because the pain that leads to the glory is not even worth comparing with the glory. Or if you, here's another way, if you made a a negative and a plus list, minuses and plus, pros and cons, what this is saying is that you wouldn't even put anything in the negative list. That's how good the positive list is. That's pretty hard to believe because our suffering can be intensely painful, extremely difficult. And this verse is not trying to pretend that away as if it doesn't exist. It's just saying, compared to the hope to come, this won't even rate a mention. So how good must this be? If this is so painful, and it is, how good must this be? That's the first thing to help us wait eagerly, comparison. The second thing is companions. It's really hard to wait, and so we groan. While we wait, look at verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, We groan. And groaning here is not like grumbling or whinging, it's about longing. It's the groan of aching, of yearning. For our hope. We are groaning while we wait. But we're not alone in our groaning. Because verse 22, here's one of our companions in our groaning. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. We'll come back to verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We are waiting for the glory of new bodies in a perfect new creation. The earth is waiting for the same thing creation's hope is to share in freedom and glory when we get it. It will happen together at the same time. And I might be wrong about this, but I think this is how we're meant to join the dots between these two things. I think it works like this. Uh, When creation groans, when there's fires and floods and earthquakes, when ice caps melt, when creation labors to produce this magnificent rainforest, and then it gets bulldozed and becomes a Macca's car park, and it's just futile and it's meaningless. In all those moments, it's like the earth is saying to us, I can't wait to see your glory. Because when the wait is over for you, that's the day it's over for me too. You're groaning and longing for that, me too. We've got a companion on our path to glory. The world, the universe, is eagerly anticipating it, just like we are. We're groaning together. And we've got one more companion on our journey, the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. In the same way that creation's groans help us to wait eagerly, the Spirit's groans do too. Because when we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit prays for us. He asks the Father God to give us what we need, even when we don't know what we need. And the Father God 100% accepts what the Spirit prays for. The Father God accepts God the Holy Spirit's prayers on our behalf, groans on our behalf, because the Holy Spirit always prays the right thing. The Holy Spirit always asks for God's will for us. This is one more help we get to wait eagerly. We've got companions on our journey. And the third thing we have is commitment. Look at verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There's a massive promise and commitment from God here that he will be at work in everything for the good of those who love him. And the first couple of times that I read verse 28 uh, in my across my Christian life, I read it and I thought it said, God will give good to those who love him. That that's the promise and commitment from God. God promises he will give good to those who love him. And that's kind of where you get some of that uh, prosperity gospel idea that some church leaders promote. The idea that the good news of the Bible is that Jesus suffers for us, so we don't have to. You can expect smooth sailing and glory in this life and more glory in the life after death. Because look at verse 28. In all things, God gives good to those who love him. And then on the flip side, if you're not getting good from God, maybe you don't love God enough. Because if you did love God, you would get good. That's what verse 28 is saying, isn't it? But that's not what verse 28 says. It doesn't say God only gives good. I'll read it again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God works for the good. Not that God will only give us good, But that he works in everything for our good. And what is the good that it's talking about here? What is the good? It's not smooth sailing through life with no suffering. It's that God will use everything that happens to you. The promise is that God will use everything that happens to you. All the heights, all the valleys to make you more like your brother Jesus. That's what God is promising here, to use everything to make you more like your brother Jesus. Look at verse 29. You get a bit more of it here. For those God foreknew, he also predestines to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The good is making us like Jesus, so that Jesus is surrounded by brothers and sisters who are worthy of him who look like him. The promise is that everything that happens to you is used by God, is designed by God to make you more like Jesus. And this is a massive commitment from God. And we can be 100% certain of this promise because the God who promises it has never broken a promise in all eternity. And no one could ever stop this God from delivering on his promises. It's so certain that actually it's put in the past tense here. Look at this, verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he will also glorify. No, it says he also glorified. It's in the past tense. There's this unbreakable chain where if you trust Jesus, you have all those things. You have been foreknown. You have been predestined and called and justified. And if you have all of those other things... Of course, you have the last thing too. You'll get the glory. It's so secure that Paul writes it in the past tense as if we already had it. So let's wait. Don't give up our hope. Don't be discouraged by suffering. Suffering is not a mistake. It's not proof that God doesn't love you. It's not a bug in the system. It's a design feature. Suffering is a design feature, not a bug. It's designed by God. God's design is to use suffering, to use everything that happens to you, to make us like Jesus Christ, so that Jesus is surrounded by brothers and sisters who are worthy of him. And suffering with Jesus is the only way to share in glory with Jesus. So keep on waiting. Let's wrap up. How are we meant to apply this part of God's word? Well, there are some impossible ways that you can apply this. Uh, This can be a helpful question to ask as you read the Bible, uh, to see, to to work out how can't it apply to us, and then to see if accidentally that's the way we're applying it. I'll give you an example. Uh, In the Gospels, Jesus says, no one can serve God and money. Jesus says, no one can serve God and money. You'll love one master, you'll hate the other. You can't do both. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. What's the impossible application? The impossible application is, I can serve God and money. No one else can. Nobody else can serve God and money, but I can. I've worked out some kind of clever way where it works fine for me. Everybody else needs to hear this part of God's word, but I'm good. I, I can, I've worked it out. That's the impossible application. Uh, that's the value of an impossible application. Have a think. What are the impossible applications here if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian? Well, I think the impossible application is that finding your own identity without God in it is a good idea. That writing your own book and your own title page without God in that book is a good idea. That that you can find a more stable identity on your own than to have God as your dad and help to face the pain and the suffering of this life and a certain hope after this life. I'd say that's an impossible application. Can you see from what we've seen today, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this can be your title page too. None of us deserve it. None of us earned it. It wouldn't make sense to deserve it or earn it. That's not how being adopted works. God gives this to everyone who trusts in Jesus, to everyone who trusts Jesus as their savior and follows him as their king, and it brings more stability more peace more hope than any other identity ever could what about if you're a christian what's the impossible application if you're a christian well a couple of things here's one treating god as if he's selfish or an absent or abusive father who is out to get you or who will get you down that's an impossible application because God is our good and perfect and loving papa. Another impossible application to expect that you can coast through this life straight on to glory. No you can't. Suffering is a design feature to make us look like Jesus because Jesus deserves siblings who look like him. Or another impossible application, it's too hard to wait. It's not possible We've got no helps from God to wait. No, it's not worth comparing. And we have companions on this journey. And God is committed. God will carry us home. God gives us this new identity, this new hope, these new helps. And if you're a Christian, this is your title page. This is not just one page in our book somewhere near the back. Good to pull out if you need to pick-me-up. This is your title page. This shapes every other page in your book. This shapes everything about your identity. It is the most important thing to know about you. And you don't have to find it. You don't have to create it. We just get given it. God gives this to us. We just have to understand it. God gives this to us for his glory. Let's pray and give him thanks. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your generosity to us. Thank you that you give us this fantastic, amazing, incredible new identity that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve, that we never will earn or deserve, just simply because of your grace and for your own glory. We pray, Lord, that we would live with this new identity, that we would live as the sons of you, looking forward to our inheritance, being in the family being like our Father, and waiting, eagerly waiting, patiently enduring the suffering that this life brings as we look forward to our hope. We pray that this would be the stable thing that we build our lives around. As everything else around us shifts, as our identities keep changing, help this to be the stable title page for everything we do for your glory. Amen.